So um, Jesus has uh, been in this continuous process of uh, ministering by teaching and miracles are following and the popularity has grown but he's announced to the apostles now a couple of times that the you know the religious leaders are going to kill him and uh they entered uh, sort of his hometown, home country, home territory, Capernaum, been in Galilee, uh, ministering. And then you come to chapter 10 and verse 1. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. So. Uh, I just um, I make a big deal of every time it says that because our ministry is you know the there are distinctives about who we are as an organization and in particular <clears throat> the greatest distinctive is that we teach the word of God verse by verse we start in Genesis. And we teach through to the book of Revelation, and we go back to the beginning, and we just continuously are teaching through. And, uh, you know, we take that from what Paul is saying when he says, I'm not guilty of any man's blood because I've not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. The tendency very often is to have certain pet subjects. And we all do, but you end up unnecessarily dwelling on them if you're constantly just choosing the topic and the passage. So at least to some degree, if you're working through the entirety of the scripture, it's going to force you uh, to deal with subjects and circumstances that you might necessarily, you know, you, you wouldn't be prone to. Uh, you you might not even you know make a concerted effort to um, you know go to that uh, subject or that place in the scripture. You know, as I'm saying that, uh, it comes to mind. Uh, you know, you, you, if you've been here even for a few studies, you are getting used to the fact that attention deficit disorder sort of dominates my um, teaching process, but. Um, <clears throat> I just had a conversation recently with a person who who brought up the subject of uh, the subconscious, and I asked them, uh, uh, "How? You know, why do you think there is a subconscious?" And they they remarked right back, you know, with sort of attitude like, "Well, of course there is." And uh, I said, "Well, you know, what is your authority on these subject matters?" Because if it's the Word of God, they were, they were a fellow Christian, I said, if it's the Word of God, then the Word of God does not give us any uh, indication that a subconscious exists. Okay, So that there is uh, what the Scripture describes as the difference between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, so we can talk about that, um, you know, you, you're thinking a certain thing, saying a certain thing, um, and then there's underneath that the intention of the heart. But if we dig into the scripture, uh, what the scripture tells us is that's actually fueled by the flesh. So the flesh has its desire. And if you want to say, like I think I talked about last week, it's not going to let you know necessarily what's going on. It's just sort of doing its own thing, okay? And, and um, <clears throat> we, we, you know, we do uh, jail uh, ministries, and, um, uh, you know, now it's all done via Zoom, and so it's an electronic Bible study, we would say. But uh, having a conversation with the men this past Thursday night, um, and I was establishing... <clears throat> the existence of the body, soul, and spirit. And I made the discussion that often, interestingly enough, people who are in jail 
uh, are more, whether they are conscious of it, they're more aware of the fact that the body has its own will and its own desire separate from the spirit or the soul because often many of them are blackout drunks. <clears throat> so you consume whatever you're consuming to the point where your soul, let's say, loses consciousness. You've sedated yourself, but the body keeps on functioning. Uh, you know what I'm saying? W without you, it just just carries on, you know, um, you know, crashes your car, and then you have to pay the consequences. Um, you know, uh, I uh, was with a friend years ago, <clears throat> and uh, he asked me to go to the bank with him because the bank was stealing all of his money out of his bank account, and he was going to hold them accountable. And we get there, and the bank manager is saying it would be better if Mr. Cast didn't come in with us. And, <clears throat> you know, he's insistent, you know, where you guys have ripped me off, and we're going to hold you accountable. And we go in. And the first video that they show us of my friend staggering up, slamming into the ATM machine, falling down. He's out of sight for like a minute and a half. And then the hand comes up and he, you know, he's up and now he and he's taking money out. And they're that was embarrassing enough. And then they're like, well, and there's also this one. And they show him another clip of a similar. And then there's this one, another clip. And another, and another, he's getting blasted out of his mind. He's blacking out. He's, you know, his body's getting in his car, <laughs> taking him on a ride, going to the bank, taking money out, and not, you know, reporting that back to, uh, well, him, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so he's convinced he's got a certain amount of money, and, you know, in reality, he's got no money, you know, so close to $5,000. That he's just, you know, withdrawn from himself and used in the stupidest ways. So, um, you know, the point being, you know, th this idea of the subconscious, um, not something that the, the scripture uh, holds up. The idea that there's a conscious part of you that controls things that you're unaware of. If you wanna, if you wanna say the flesh has its appetites and you need to one be born again that the spirit that god breathed into adam which was put to death by his sin would be revived by the spirit of god the holy spirit coming into you then okay now we're starting to get on the right page and if you grow to the point as a christian until that holy spirit dominates your circumstances and dictates to the flesh, right? Because the flesh, like a you know ravenous child, says I want and makes the soul obey, and everybody gets to go along for whatever ridiculous ride that produces. Reverse that whole process where the Holy Spirit says, No, this is the direction we're going. Uh, you in not only in fact will you as the flesh behave in this way it also says to the soul and you will think this way <clears throat> the holy spirit god's holy spirit within us you know reverses the whole program flips it right side up so that the spirit dictates to the thought process the soul and to the flesh how they will think how they will behave so um, here, uh, the teaching is so critical um, in, in what we are doing. Uh, our intention here, right, Jesus over and over again says to the apostles, we can assume safely at least four times, um, maybe more if we look at all of the Gospels and how it's recorded. He's saying that the Word of God will and can save their souls. The Word of God is so critical, so very critical uh, to the life of believers and, and, you know, to abandon it and either uh, use it poorly, uh, use it to a lesser degree or not to not use it at all. That's, a, that's astonishing that, that there are literally organizations of Christianity that don't use the Word of God uh, in, in their presentation. They've got a social club going, 
uh, that's uh, very often in those settings uh, focused prominently on the emotional experiences that they can create with music in worship. And then there's little else uh, delivered in the process. So here, again, just to point it out, it was his custom to teach them. Jesus' custom is to teach them. The Pharisees came and asked him. This isn't the idea of, hey, we got a question that we know only you have the answer to. So, you know, tough one. Can you sort this out? for? It's the idea of trick. So the, the, the question they have uh, is purposely deceptive. They're coming with an agenda to twist this thing up as much as they can. The Pharisees come, ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? He answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And uh, this is, um, he starts with a soft verbal slap in the face. Because these, these are the guys that are the experts in the law, experts in the word of God. And so when he asked this question, uh, there's a tone of, um, have you guys ever read your Bible? You know, is sort of where he's, you know, uh, asking them, you know, what was it that Moses commanded? Uh, like, are you guys not aware? You know, Moses wrote on this subject. You know, you guys might want to read up on that is sort of what, uh, he's saying to them, and, and you can hear them suck the air right out of the room with that statement. They're so offended that they just, oh, you know, they can't believe that he would ask such a thing of them. What did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Now, look, <clears throat> I am always, verse by verse, I am always blown away when the services that we're teaching, you know, they line up with one another. Okay. Um, I know there's people watching tonight that are currently dealing with this in their lives. And they were, that what, what Jesus is quoting here comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. We were in Deuteronomy chapter 24 in our morning service. Okay, when, when I can see here's a person who's dealing with this very subject in their life, and then the Lord orchestrates us. Okay, the attention deficit disorder thing. Think about how many times, you guys, uh, you can tell by the way I'm preaching that I intend to end someplace else, and I go off and I, and I like cut short or I go long. And, and we end in this sort of arbitrary place to pick up, but like, like it would be impossible for me with this teaching method to orchestrate, you know, morning and evening service coinciding this way. This is the sort of thing that when a subject like this comes up, you should pay strict attention, not only to the fact that the Lord is trying to say something, but also to the overall picture of God's God's ordination in how we're functioning as a church. You know, when when we pray and say, "Guide us," when we submit and say, "Lord, uh, this is yours. Do with it as you wish. Take us through the process." Then you gotta, you know, sort of recognize that He is doing that. That that God truly is in control and orchestrating these circumstances. So particular. Uh, you know, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Now, uh, before we move on, uh, the hardness of the heart that he's talking about is difficult to nail down, okay? Because um, we can read it thinking, um, okay, so there's one spouse, let's say, that's committing adultery, and um, you know they're going to allow for this divorcement to take place that we're describing, and we'll talk about that more. Uh, so the person who's had the offense committed against them, 
their heart is hard. They won't forgive. They won't be gracious with the one who's committing the sin. Possible? Probable is what, you know, that's what the Lord is saying. But it could be the reverse also. The hardness of the heart of the person committing the adultery, right? They're hardened against the Lord, hardened against their spouse. They are doing something that's in rebellion to God's work. Point is that when an, a person is not submitted to the Lord, whichever way you want to look at this, then divorce is allowed. Okay? Notice that it's not commanded. You must divorce this person. Notice that it's not encouraged. Please divorce this person. It, it's the exception. It's the allowance. The Lord is saying if it comes down to it and it's necessary because of the hardness of heart, then it is allowed. Another thing to take note of is uh, the fact that there is a requirement for believers, there is a requirement for a certificate of divorce. Okay? Certificate of divorce. And if you're thinking, well, of course, there is. Well, that also means that there's a certificate required for marriage. And, and if you're thinking like, of course, well, there is the thought within Christianity of, well, you know, we're completely committed to one another. We're completely, we're already married, you know, emotionally. So therefore, I mean, what's a piece of paper? Well, according to the Lord, it's required. Okay. Not men, as some people, oh, marriage is an institution created by men. Not according to this. Notice the letters are in red, right? The only reason you would have to issue an actual piece of paper, a certificate of divorce, is to nullify a certificate of marriage that has been written. So Jesus endorses both concepts, that marriage is supposed to be through the state through the church. Now, in, we're getting all messed up as to what marriage is, and we'll talk about that in a moment in our culture, but understand that the Lord requires us to make a legal commitment before our witnesses to be bound to a person for the rest of our lives. If we do not do that, then we are violating God's ordinance. It's not just, an, yes, it's an ordinance of men, but it's not just an ordinance of men. Men have derived it from God's word and instituted it amongst themselves. This, this is the Lord's precept that we're dealing with here. So because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this uh, precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Okay, <clears throat> Rabbit trail, trail number 2000, um, from the beginning of creation implies that Adam and Eve were the beginning of creation. And again, you're saying no kidding, but there are those that say, no, no, God started creation in Genesis 1, and then Satan came and disrupted creation in Genesis 1. And that's where all the dinosaur fossils came from because he created confusion in God's creation. So then God sent a massive flood, not Noah's flood. God sent a massive flood to wipe out that first portion of creation. And that's where all the dinosaur fossils come from, is that first portion of creation. And uh, these that think like this are referred to as gap theorists. They say that there is a gap and there's a varying degrees of measurement uh, that say, you know, a few years to a few thousand years to an uncharted number of millions of years that God started creation and it got disrupted in verse 1 and that's where all that death and mayhem came from and then God created the garden and planted Adam and Eve 
in the garden. <clears throat> right here, Jesus is saying that Adam and Eve were at the very beginning, right? Read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. These are the same thing. Jesus is referring to the beginning as being Adam and Eve simultaneously. Second concept within this is that the Luciferian flood that supposedly took place in the gap theory and all of these dinosaurs and vegetation and all this stuff got wiped out uh, implies that death occurred before Adam arrived on the scene, right? Whereas both Paul and Jesus teach us that death entered creation by Adam. And through his sin. And, and interestingly enough, the way it's worded is that death touched all of creation because of Adam. Not, not just Adam's death. Or, so, so when we can look out into the universe and recognize stars are going out, you know, planets, orbits are decaying, uh, the universe is falling apart. You know, our solar system is in the process of, you know, losing its structure. Our sun is burning out. Our earth is decaying. All life is coming to an end. It's the law of entropy is affecting all of creation. Adam brought that into all of creation. So for those that want to say, well, there's aliens on another planet and they're super superior to us. Guess what? They fell under the curse of sin also and are in need of Jesus Christ's salvation if they exist at all. Because Adam's sin thrust all of creation under the curse. Not just planet Earth. Not just Adam and Eve. We're all experiencing this decay, right? I've talked to you about the fact that the sun's burning off 120 million tons of mass a second. We're losing approximately five inches a year to the sun. Uh, that means the fuel tank's going to run out. There's going to reach a point where there's no more sun. Uh, where is that? Well, there's varying opinions about that. Bottom line is the tank's going to run dry. The, the sun is going to be extinguished. We're all headed towards a demise because of Adam. So it's inappropriate to say there's a gap. It's inappropriate to say, oh, God started and then Adam and Eve. Because Jesus just put Adam and Eve at the beginning. Right? And if, if you think about it, go back and study on your own. right? Because Adam and Eve don't arrive until day six. right? So that's way after the supposed gap that, that uh, you know, some theologians create from their imagination. And all of that is just an effort to try and somehow make themselves acceptable to the evolutionary community and make evolution acceptable to Christianity. Uh, I go again. We were created, all things were created in six literal days because you begin right there in Genesis 1-1 and it says, and morning and evening were the first day. 24-hour light cycle and then morning and evening second day and morning and evening third day. Everything was created inside six literal 24-hour light cycles, and then God rested on the seventh day. So here, again, you find all over the Scripture the commentary on the Scripture. In the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now that brings us to the discussion of can men marry men, can women marry women? Not according to Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of procreation was families, children, offspring. Um, the one commandment that God gives to Adam and Eve, the one commandment, the prominent commandment, is that they would go into the world and fill the whole world. right? Populate the whole world is what he said. Right now, <clears throat> um, I won't even get into COVID, uh, there's... there's a, a rejuvenated discussion on population control. Okay, that that we're overpopulated on planet Earth and we need to get rid of a whole bunch of people in order to survive. Some of you know where I'm headed and you're sick of my repetition, but good for you. 
Um, you can still take the whole world's population, even though there are 6.9 billion people, some say 7.2, doesn't matter. It doesn't even make that much of a difference. You can still fit the entire world's population inside Texas, and everybody gets 1,268 square feet of their own. Okay, that's it's not a huge plot of land, but you still got your own space inside Texas. Okay, you want more space? Uh, let's all go live in California. You know what I'm saying? Let's get equal distance between us all. No, not enough space. Uh, let's spread out evenly across North America. How about that? Let's try North America. Or how about just the United States? Right? If you've ever driven across the United States, you've seen just a gajillion miles of corn. For Like, what in the world? Why do we need so much corn? It's crazy. There is a massive amount of space on planet Earth. There is not a population problem. Do we have parking issues in New York, Los Angeles, and Hong Kong? Yes. Okay. Are there problems due to the consolidation of population inside certain areas? How about this? From uh, Washington, D.C. to New York City to Philadelphia, that little triangle is the most densely populated 100 square miles on planet Earth. Too many people living in one place. All right. I, I get the problems that we create for ourselves with these things, but God's planet is still not overpopulated. It's not. And, and what's going on is a concerted effort on the part of Lucifer to wipe out the human race, to convince us, to frighten us, convince us that if you want to survive, well, we got to kick some people off the lifeboat, man, because there's just no way we're going to make it. To this day, we are paying American farmers to till hundreds of thousands of acres back underground in order to control the market for certain crops. There's not even a food problem. You know, Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 24 talking about um, that in the end times there will be famine. Right, Every single famine in modern history was created by the human race. Every single one of them. Um, I, I was in high school, very impressionable teen, uh, when they presented uh, to us uh, the Ethiopians that were starving in Africa. And we all needed to help the Ethiopians. And, and they were starving, right? Uh, so uh, all the old rock and rollers got together and we're going to have uh, live aid. And we're going to do this big rock and roll festival. We're going to raise all this money. And we're going to save these poor Ethiopians from their starvation. Well, <clears throat> what they didn't tell us, which they knew full well, is all the Ethiopians were starving in the desert because they had chosen to flee there in order to escape the communist government takeover. Right? So it wasn't because... They were farmers, and suddenly their crops dried up. It was a matter of flee for your life in order to not get killed by the invading communist regime. So we raised $17 million, which today just sounds dumb. It's such a small sum, but it was a big deal at the time. And, and in our infinite wisdom, what we did was we gave $17 million to the communist government that controlled their country, Ethiopia. And we told them, we're going to give this to you, but you're going to promise that you're going to buy grain and you're going to give it to these starving Ethiopians. And interestingly enough, they did. They did. Uh, but what they did was created these massive UN-run relief centers where they brought hundreds of tons of grain to those relief centers. And they sent messengers out to all the starving Ethiopians and said, if you want the grain, you got to come to this UN relief center. When they showed up, they were given a few choices. Join the Communist Party or die. Or you can go back out in the desert and starve to death. But that's So that's what we did with $17 million. We converted people to communism. We killed them or we left them starving in the desert. The problems that we have, you know, around us, we, you really got to pay attention to what's going on. Because if you're just watching the television and believe in the junk that's pouring out of that 
electronic device, then you're going to be brainwashed in the process. God's Word right here tells us that male and female, one male, one female, should be married and remain that way. For this reason, verse 7, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. We, we, we say that at the end of the wedding ceremony. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. You know, we talked about the fact this morning that uh, the two becoming one flesh, it does have the automatic understanding of procreation. That one man, one woman, you know, have the potential to bear children. And that child is, is the one flesh that comes from their two flesh. But it's also uh, the intimacy that is created during the intimacy of marriage. That the two flesh is bound together emotionally and spiritually in a way that does not happen in any other experience in life. And that's why it's so critical to keep such a high value on sexual intimacy. Because it does bind one person together with another. And if you've done that to three, four, seven, twenty-five more occasions in your life then you're creating a physical and emotional and a spiritual confusion to the human soul. The Lord wants it to be that one person bonds with one person. Um, there's a whole bunch of discussion that I uh, reserve for when we're studying through the Song of Solomon and the intimacy that is described there about the actual act of intercourse where the human minds are bound together in a way through that experience that cannot occur any other way. can't, can't happen any other way. Memories uh, and uh, emotions that are experienced cannot be bound together any other way. God, this is God's gift to the human race. And, and we... Treat it like trash and, and hurt and destroy and injure one another. God wants this to be the most sacred thing. I've described, uh, you know, the specifics of this in the past where, you know, you come to that wedding ceremony and, you know, we've developed this tradition of give the bride and groom a gift. You know, Aunt Sally's punch bowl that you don't want anymore. Wrap it up nice and give it to the couple. You know, just, you know, get them a whole, I don't know, a, you know, set of cutlery from, you know, wherever you can afford. And, you know, they definitely need frying pans like you have frying pans. I don't know, whatever. You're bringing them gifts. Some of them, very, very useful. You know, they get them. They can't believe. Oh, my goodness. You know, somebody bought us a, a whole honeymoon package. How crazy is that? You know. You know, in other ones, you're like, I already own a set of salt and pepper shakers just like this. You know, just varying degrees of gifts. God's gift to that couple is sexual intimacy. Nobody's given a gift that ever even comes close to that gift. That's God's gift to that couple. And it's such a violation to then say, well, a man and a man and a woman, and a woman is the same thing. It is not. It's not. I, I mean, I'm not going to get in any more graphic than this to say the woman's body was designed for the man. The man's body was designed for the woman. This is God's intention. This is God's intention. And the greatest level of fulfillment they can experience in that regard is with one another. Jesus is declaring that right here. It, it is, it, it, you know, such an intimate conversation that he's having with them because their culture has come to the point like our culture where they've got all kinds of reasons and excuses. They took what Moses said in Deuteronomy where uh, Moses said, if a man is, you know, finds unfavor, 
with his wife, uh, uh, that he can divorce her. They've turned that into literally, I'm bugged by you. By the time Jesus arrives, it's supposed to be that only, according to Deuteronomy, are they allowed divorcement if there is sexual unfaithfulness within the marriage. That's it. That's the only reason. And even then, the implication is that the hardness of the heart is the only allowance for that divorce to take place. They've gotten to the point at right here in Jesus' discussion where there's a large group of Jewish believers who are saying, literally, if she doesn't cook your eggs the way that you like, all you have to do is write on a piece of paper, I divorce you, and put it in her hand in front of witnesses, right? Like, you know, today they have, you know, serving notice, legal notice, and they have to say out loud so that witnesses can hear, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it's finalized. That's incredibly cheap. Mar that marriage has gotten to the place in Jesus' day where that's all it takes. Part of what he's saying here and what he continues with is the fact that they're treating it like a dating service. You know, married the gal. When you're young, she's had a couple kids. Uh, you know, your eye begins to wander. You have a conversation with somebody that makes you think you could develop a relationship with somebody new, or maybe you've already developed a relationship with somebody new, just go home and write, I divorce you. Put it in their hands, say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Now get your junk and get out. And then go invite the new gal over, have a little ceremony, and you're married. They, they, they got to the point where they're doing this so frequently that it is literally in their culture like a dating service. And and both the men and women are so nervous, right, about marriage, right? Because, oh, here's a guy, he just divorced somebody. Am I number two, number three, number five, number 25? You know, this guy's just, you know, he's saying, well, I'm, I'm not actually in any violation. I'm not committing adultery. Why? Because I marry each one of them and I divorce each one of them. I think you and I in this room, we all know that if you're just going in and getting the certificate of paper to ease your conscience, that the marriage is already not valid. You know, if you have a heart filled with lust and and you're already propelled towards the relationship from the issue of lust, and all you're doing is saying, well, uh, gosh, in the past I would have behaved in a way that was sinful, but now that I'm a Christian, we better go get it, you know, legal. You, you probably ought to abandon the relationship completely and learn what it means, because, right, in Deuteronomy, he then goes on to say that when they get married, that that groom cannot go to war for a year, nor take a job that his job is to remain at home and make his bride happy for a year. Deuteronomy 24 is what I'm talking about, verses 1 through 4. The Lord says in Deuteronomy, in regard to what Jesus is referencing here, that the job of the spouse is to make his wife happy. If you have it in your mind that developing the relationship has you know, little to do with anything except for sexual gratification, then your selfishness is going to destroy that relationship no matter what. It means that you need to back away from the relationship and learn what it means. Follow what Jesus says here. Uh, Therefore, with the Lord is joined together, let no man separate. Verse 10, in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Um, a couple of things there. Uh, it's sometimes taught that women were not allowed to uh, divorce their husbands at this period of time in history. And you just read right there, if a woman divorces her husband. 
Okay, so just let the scripture correct your thinking process on that. Women did, and women did it because of promiscuity uh, nearly as much as men did, right? I mean, they caught a woman in the act of divorce, and they dragged her out uh, in the act of adultery, and they dragged her out into the street naked. Uh, so, you know, it was common enough knowledge of her behavior that they were able to capture her and bring her out in front of uh, Jesus to say, you know, do you want to stone her as the law requires or not? This culture at Jesus' day was incredibly sinful, just like our culture is now, in regard to being very flippant, very cavalier about the issue of marriage. This that Jesus describes in verse 11 and 12 is what I gave illustration to uh, of married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. It doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I've described to you before that, uh, you know, I have friends who uh, have, each of them, interestingly enough, been married five times. And, uh, you know, if you've been married and divorced, I don't mean to be cruel at all, and I guess that sounds that way, but if you've been married and divorced five times, I mean, you know, I guess don't take my word for it. I'm just being real as far as statistically. You might as well not get married because the odds that that relationship is going to survive, you have, you have like a nearly 98% chance of divorce if you've been married and divorced four times and you're about to be married the fifth time. The, the statistics that that relationship are going to last are so near zero that it really, I mean, it's probably a waste of money, if nothing else, to go through the process. I don't mean to be cruel about it. You know, your your best investment at that point is a Bible, you know, and church attendance. You know, take two years off from relationships and and seek the Lord and let him speak to your heart because I pretty much guarantee you're going to destroy you got to come to a place where you, you recognize common denominators, right? Every relationship that I've been in has been destroyed. The one common denominator regarding each of these relationships is I was in them. <laughs> you know, it may be, statistically, it may be that I'm the problem and you need to analyze yourself and let the Lord analyze you to show you things about yourself uh, that maybe you've never seen before. So this, what Jesus is saying is this revolving door issue. It is not to say that if you've been married previously, that God forbids you from being married again. That That is not what this is saying. Um, so uh, we had a gentleman here years ago. Um, who um, had a really big problem with lust. He came to me, told me that as soon as he started attending this church. And um, so we began seeking the Lord together and praying and, you know, actually letting the Lord work in that area of his life. And uh, he was not cooperating with the Lord. Um, as much as he learned and much as he studied, uh, he continued to gratify that lust. And uh, you're not going to make any progress when that's the case. And uh, so then he comes to me and tells me that the Lord has revealed to him that he needs to divorce his wife. And when I ask for explanation about this, the way it unfolds is, well, when I was very young, he says, I got married. And I was so young and that relationship was so sinful that I can look back now and realize I should not have gotten married. And it ended in divorce. So then I gave my life to Christ and started going to church. And I met the woman that is now my wife. But when she was very young, she also got married, had two daughters and then subsequently got divorced. So when we got married, she came into the marriage with her two daughters, and we have since had two daughters 
together in our marriage. But I have been reading this passage, he tells me, in Mark and also in Matthew, and I have decided that God is telling me that it's sinful for me to be in this marriage, so I need to divorce my wife and be celibate the rest of my life. Okay, well, well, here's the thing, you guys. When he walked through the door, he's telling me that he has a profound problem with lust. He's done nothing about that issue in his life. He has the same level of lust problem in his life as when he walked through the door. And now he's trying to convince me, God is telling me to divorce my wife. I'll just ask you, please don't answer, just think in your heart. What do you think he's going to do when he leaves his wife? Right? He's going to go fulfill the lust that's in his heart. And there's now going to be four young women that grow up having had a father that told them, God told me to divorce your mother and abandon you all. I lost my mind on the guy. I literally freaked out on him because he's insistent this is going to happen. This is the way it's going. You guys, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. If you've been divorced in the past, and let's be frank, God has slapped you upside the head and showed you your sin and your selfishness, and he has changed you as a person. You've been born again. You're a new creation. And then God puts you in a relationship with a fellow believer. It's okay to get married. God does not want people just rotating through relationship after relationship after relationship. Because what he's saying is, if that's how you're functioning, don't kid yourself. It's not marriage. It's adultery. You're just committing adultery over and over again and satisfying your own conscience by getting a piece of paper to approve of it. Repent. Let Christ change your heart and mind. Let him change you as a person and work in you. So you enter into a marriage, the number one thing that's going to be required of you is to be that other person's servant. You ready to do that? I mean, is that the earmark of your life? Right? <laughs> you know, everybody that's hanging out with you right now, presently, is saying, man, you're just a servant to everyone else. Or have they been confronting you? over your laziness and your selfishness and your sinfulness. Because if that's what's going on in your life, probably you're at least a little ways away from the day where Christ would call you to serve one of his daughters or one of his sons. Consider the severity of divorce and marriage and what the Lord is saying. Verse 13, Then they brought him little children, or then they brought little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Um, this is, uh, the touching them is the, the concept of like laying hands on and pronouncing a blessing. That, that's, the other Gospels give us a little more insight into it, but that's, that's the, the concept that's going on here it is... Uh, these uh, mothers and fathers are saying, this is Jesus. He's this special rabbi. He heals people. He does miracles. He's this amazing teacher. And, and we want to take this child to Jesus and, and ask him to lay his hands upon them. And, and probably it's even the idea of pray over them to pronounce blessings. Um, there, there's two directions that this goes biblically. Um, th the priests in the Old Testament would bring in the sacrifice, and th the person that was looking to have the sacrifice performed on their behalf would lay their hands upon the head of the sacrifice, and they would make confession of the sin that they wanted the offering to cover. So you bring in a lamb, let's say, and it's going to be offered up, and, and you're offering it because, uh, let's just say you stole something, and, and now you, you know that that sin would you know, be punishable by your death, so now you're bringing the sacrifice, and you're saying, you know, I've gone through the process of restoring 
seven times what I stole. I've obeyed the law in all that regard, but I also want this lamb to cover uh, the sin that I perform. And so you confess your sin uh, while you lay hands. And so the symbolism is to transfer your guilt to the animal. Okay, So then that later becomes in the Levitical law that especially during the priesthood that the congregation, the elders, the leaders would lay their hands upon the priests or those that were going to minister. The idea of symbolically, there's no mystical power in the laying on of hands, but uh, you know, symbolically transferring approval and authority uh, uh, onto the priests. So this laying on of the hands becomes prominent in the culture. And here they're bringing their children and saying, we want Jesus to touch our kids and to bless them. Uh, the apostles' answer is children are a problem and they're messy and noisy, so like get them out of here is uh, their attitude. Uh, you know, you can you can pretty much see Jesus behaving that way, can't you? You know, just like throwing rocks at kids and trying to run them off. I just you know, I say that because these guys have been with Jesus this long, and this is their attitude. You know, um, take the warning. You can be around the Word of God, around Christianity, around Jesus for a long time and still have all the wrong attitudes. You can still behave in a way that would not reflect your Savior at all. When you see yourself doing that, repent, ask forgiveness, ask the Lord to teach you, show you what you need to see about yourself. Do not make the assumption that you know, I've been hanging out with Jesus for you know almost two years now. I've I really got my act together. You know, I've thought that way a lot. You know, and you get a, a year further down the road and look back and think, oh man, what a creep I was. And you get another two years, another five years down the road, and you look back to the very beginning and think, oh good lord, what was that? I've gotten to the place thirty plus years into this program where I'm confident next year I'm going to look back at myself right now and think, what is wrong with me? Just know it's forever going to be a process of learning. Yes, 30 years into the program, you better be much closer to the conduct and character of Jesus. But the goal is perfection. Perfection. There's always a lot of room to improve. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, it, 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 you shouldn't ever think like, I just got to get to a certain mark. And at that point, no, it's going to be a lot of progress. They're trying to run the kids off. You know, just want to bring them up for a blessing. Get lost. You know, I, what, a, what a wonderful bunch of deacons that, you know, are greeting people at the door of your church. You know, shunning people away and running them off. When Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. Greatly displeased. Okay? Enough to where it was visible. <laughs> right? You should not think of Jesus as always just sort of being like half conscious of, you know, you know he's just in this super happy state of near weirdness that uh, you know he's just sort of floating around always you know blessing and touching people <laughs> you know at times he gets really angry right he flips money changers tables over how about this guys right he braids he takes the time to braid a whip and then the scripture tells us that he drove grown men out of the temple with it. Now, we don't know that he hit them. There you know, is some degree of sinfulness calculated in that. I, I, I don't know. He might have. He might have hit you know, people with that whip. Nehemiah, right, comes back to build the wall, and the men are marrying the pagan women and allowing them to continue on in their pagan idolatry and raise their children in the pagan idolatry. And Nehemiah is so angry with them 
the way it's written is that he ripped out their beards and struck them in the face. Okay? Uh, if you squint just a little as you read that passage, uh, it seems to be saying that he grabbed them by the beard when he struck them in the face, and that's how he ripped their beards out of their head. Okay? And that was, that was an act of righteousness because he was forcibly bringing those men to repentance, saying this type of conduct was the thing that thrust us into captivity. We just got released from captivity, and you're starting all over again with the same thing. Like, Do you want to destroy what the Lord has begun before we even get started? How stupid can you be? Jesus here, you know, to whatever degree, greatly displeased is evident to everyone. Everyone. Uh, you know, this this culture we live in has an attitude like everybody should just be tolerant and kind all the time. Don't ever cross anybody. I, <clears throat> hopefully the gentleman that put the snide remark on our Facebook is watching again this evening. But um, he posted that um that this organization was being led by an evil narcissist that it was wrong to judge people okay follow the concept wouldn't you have to be very full of yourself and judgmental to say something like that about me and us? Like, aren't you narcissistic and evil and judgmental? Right? Our culture doesn't even get it, you guys. You know, it's walking around acting like, oh, we all just got to be friends. There's wicked people all around us, right? You got, I mean, at times you're going to see and witness things that make you flip out righteously and in a correct way. If your deacons are at the door kicking people out because they got kids with them. <laughs> yeah, I'm, The pastor should be visibly upset at this moment. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that that's a godly response to the circumstance. Uh, Jesus is, is angry. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, implying that they have forbidden them. To bring children, bring other people you want to, maybe kids a little bit older, but not the little children. Now I'll address another issue in regard to us, because we do not allow children under 12 years old to come into the adult Bible study here. Okay. Uh, the first reason is we know that a lot of the concepts that are being delivered in this room are far too mature for them. Take, for instance, the sexual intimacy we've discussed here in this evening's Bible study. Secondly, we construct a Bible study for them and a worship service for them that's appropriate for their age. We have children's church available to them. We've been accused, because we don't allow the children to hear, of committing this violation. You're supposed to let the kids come in. You know what I, I say about this? And I know I'm purposely wording this in an interesting way. Uh, I don't let the kids come in here during the church service because they are going to want to worship in a very particular way that is appropriate for their age group. And the parents are going to be constantly distracting those children from being able to worship in the way that's appropriate for them. Now, you know, everybody sort of reverses that and says, you know, they're going to be up, they're going to be moving around, they're going to be talking, they're going to be doing little kid things, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to distract the parents, right? So then the parents are always going to be correcting them. I, I ask you, of the age group, who has self-control? The adults, not the children. So as far as the children worshiping in the way that they're capable of, they're doing it when they come in here and they're talking through the service and distracted and playing with one another. That's what they should be doing. 
So we've constructed an environment where they can go do that. If I bring them in here and now parents are going, quiet, sit down, stop moving. Then what we're doing is keeping them from meeting Jesus. They're learning church stinks. <laughs> I do not like this place. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they're making me sit in this chair. They're holding my hands. They won't. I can't even color. You know what I'm saying? They just let them go. Just take them upstairs and give them, you know, two or three verses from the same, you know, passages we're in and let them absorb it to whatever degree they can and give them a snack and color a picture with them, would you? Just like take the choker hold off the child. Let them come to Jesus in a way that's age appropriate, good for them. It, correct me if I'm wrong. Talk to me later about it. But in my opinion, that's that's our best method for making it possible for them to get to Jesus and hear the things that they need to. If if we've made church unenjoyable for them, trust me, they hit the teen years, they're not going to be thinking, oh, I just I can't wait to go to that place. <laughs> they're going to be chewing their own arm off by the time they hit 11 to get out the door. Let, let let Christ minister to them. Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And we've talked about this recently, the concept that the child doesn't come with an agenda. They come as they are, and there's very little that would cause them to be repulsed. You know, children walk up, and uh, if, if you're really kind to children... Children will re respond well uh, to you. you know, I, uh, John and Nina were here this morning with their you know, little tyke, and I'm, I'm holding him, and I'm sitting real close to his dad because the, you know, the big burly dude with the beard I'm not familiar with. And so I want him to get used to the fact that dad's telling him it's okay, and I'm giving him the big smiles and the conversation. That, that we're okay, that I'm safe, that everything's going to be all right. It needs to be uh, that we're bringing people into the kingdom in this way. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as little children will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. And there's the conclusion of that purpose and the laying on of hands is the actual blessing of them the way it's described you guys is the idea of he took a position where they were able to just sort of climb all over him you know jesus just put himself you know either uh, you know in a seated position or on the ground or in whatever way or maybe he just stood but they were able to just come up to him and embrace him and, and touch him and you know, talk to them and look, if, if there's a few kids around him, then that's going to make, you know, other kids want to come around him. He's just saying, just gather around, just cluster around, just experience the touch of God and the blessing. That's the beautiful picture of the kingdom that Jesus wanted to relay. Sidestep with the concept. Um, I've talked to you about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And the one thing that is always lacking, there's lots of other things, but the one thing that is always lacking in their upbringing and their experience is they don't have the concept that God loves them and accepts them. Just, just you know, he's just invited. They got to, you know, go through all the hoops. They got to... They got to do the works. They got to, you know, earn the favor. They got to, you know, and, and here Jesus is saying, this is how the kingdom is. I'm just the super friendly, kind, good guy that would never do any children any harm that just wants to say, like, yeah, I don't care how you are. Just come over here with your snotty nose and I'll just embrace you. I'll just take you. If you're willing to come to me, I'm willing to embrace you. That That's the message of the kingdom, right? John 3.16. That's the, the entirety of our message. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's the key word right there, whosoever, whatever condition, whatever circumstances, 
whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He wants to lay his hands on anyone that would get within proximity and allow him to lay his hands upon them and transfer his blessing onto their life. To, to give to them the things that are fulfilling in, uh, you know, um, providing salvation. So, um, 17 as far as we can make it, unless you guys want to stay all night like last week, but um, we'll just uh, leave off at uh, 16 and we'll pick up at 17 next week. So why don't we stand and we'll pray. <clears throat>